0: I'm Derek Thompson, and this is Crazy Genius. So today is a special episode of the show. In the first two seasons of this podcast, we've looked at some of the biggest questions facing tech today and in the future. And now there's no question that technology and the software revolution in particular has done a lot of wonderful things for the world. But in the last few years, there's been this growing sense that the revolution comes with serious downsides that many of the companies we once treated as curious underdogs have grown into Goliaths. It's the idea that Facebook's platform presents a unique threat to democracy and the safety of some minority populations. Or that Amazon's size presents an economic threat to innovation. Or that Apple, in designing the most profitable product in the history of modern computers, also designed an instrument of harmful behavioral addiction so in this bonus episode i wanted to ask and answer two questions one how did the big tech story shift from optimism to fear and two where do we go from here the best kind of person to think through this question i think is somebody whose career spans both software and journalism so i can't think of a better guest than meredith broussard an NYU journalism professor and author of the book, Artificial Unintelligence, How Computers Misunderstand the World. Broussard's career spans the history of the web. She majored in computer science at Harvard University in the early 1990s, and since then she's been features editor at the Philadelphia Inquirer and a software developer at MIT Media Lab. I think you'll be very interested in what she has to say. And with that, here's our show. So I'm interested in the question, uh, what went wrong with the internet? Or why does it seem like the digital revolution has been so disappointing? And I thought we'd start with you taking me back to the halcyon days of the early 1990s when you were studying computer science. Um, What initially drew you to this field?
1: I started studying computer science at Harvard in 1991, um, and I was— I was one of only six women uh, in computer science at Harvard at the time, and I had been excited about computers ever since I was a little girl. I built a robot when I was in you know kindergarten or something. In and, kindergarten? Yeah. I mean, they had these kits, right? That's like, impressive. That's great. You know, you got an erector set, and you built a robot, and it had a little motor and everything. I built this robot, and I was totally convinced that it was going to be my new best friend, and it was going to play fetch with me because my dog wouldn't play fetch with me. And so I plug in the robot, and I put in the, uh, the batteries, and it doesn't work. <laughs> and I was so disappointed, and I learned from that experience that parts break. And so... That was really useful knowledge to take into uh, you know, making technology because as a computer scientist, you have to just make things over and over again and you have to hammer on them and they break all the time. <laughs> that was the kind of person I was going into uh, studying computer science in college. And it was a really good uh, kind of hacker mentality for that time.
0: In the early 1990s, digital culture was really informed by the counterculture movement of the 60s, early 70s. Like, people were reading Whole Earth Catalog and Stuart Brand, and they were into new communalism. And there was this belief that the internet wouldn't just essentially retrace all of the problems of the physical world. It would represent a kind of utopia. I mean, do you, do you remember other people working in computer science having these extremely high hopes for, for what the Internet was going to do for the world in the mid-1990s?
1: Absolutely, yes. We were such idealists. <laughs> there was this idea that cyberspace was this new uncharted territory and that it was going to be better than everything that had come before. There was a lot of hippie idealism in the early Internet. The early Internet was deeply groovy. <laughs> The communes had failed, but the ideals of the communes, it was like they were transported entirely from the physical communes to the uh, new uncharted virtual world of cyberspace. And one of the interesting things I discovered in my research for the book was that the people who ran the communes and the people who embedded the culture of the early internet were exactly the same people. Right. (laughs) So Stuart Brand, who started the whole Earth Catalog, was the founder of the very first internet community, which was called The Well. And then so Stuart Brand is basically the Forrest Gump of the internet. Everywhere you you go, like every major innovation and every major milestone in the development of the internet, Stuart Brand is somewhere
0: there. Are there ways in which the early Internet felt like a hippie commune? (laughs) It wasn't just built by hippies. It, it, It felt like living in a commune when you were visiting these sites.
1: That kind of freewheeling ideology of, oh, you can say anything and you can be anyone and you can be anywhere and you can try on different personas. I think that was really embedded in the DNA of how people crafted the Internet and how people imagined Internet spaces. And really, one of the only places you still see that is a place like Reddit or a place like Hacker News. Very quickly, it became apparent that the kind of fantasies about the world that technology was going to bring us and the fantasies about what the internet was going to bring us were exactly that, were just fantasies, that the digital world was going to replicate all of the social and economic inequalities of the real world.
0: What's happened 20 years later is that it seems to me like tech isn't hippie at all. Like tech is the man. The largest companies in the world are essentially tech companies, not only here, uh, but in China. And the prevailing attitude toward technology is not as a kind of you know communalist infrastructure, but rather something that is potentially dangerous, potentially bad for not only democracy but but our lives and our sense of freedom. Looking back over the last two decades, was there a moment where you began to see the train go off the tracks?
1: First of all, I think you're right. Um, I think tech is now the man. I think there is still a degree of marketing where people like to Imagine that people who are doing startups, who are doing tech startups are like the cool outsiders. Like they're not outsiders at all. Your startup only gets funded if you're an insider. For me and for other people of color, for other women, we were actually never on the inside. And so I think that the uh, racism and sexism of the insider tech community has always been Very, uh, very apparent. So I I actually dropped out of computer science because of the sexism. I just couldn't take it. And I got back into it through journalism, which is a much more women-friendly profession. For many people, we never saw tech as an incredibly welcoming place. The feeling of, oh, there are infinite possibilities, it just didn't last very long. Like, in my case, it didn't even last past the end of college.
0: In what way, specifically, did tech feel unwelcoming?
1: There's a particular experience of being female in these spaces where it becomes incredibly oppressive that people are always trying to have sex with you. So there was a thread on Twitter the other day about young women going to tech conferences and how, like, their experience of it is just, like, getting hit on constantly, it's exhausting not to be taken seriously.
0: Is tech unique in this respect or just worse by several degrees than the typical industry?
1: That's a good question. I think because it was a new industry, it never had the grown-ups come in and say, listen, uh, you need to restrain your behavior because there weren't any grown-ups, right? Like, there are very few people who have seniority to Mark Zuckerberg, and Mark Zuckerberg is still pretty young.
0: And because there aren't grown-ups, there's not a culture of rules and lines that say, you can't do this. Is that what you're saying? Because it's just interesting, because on the one hand, of course, tech is unique in this regard, both in terms of its newness and in terms of its gender breakdown. But there are other older industries that have similar problems. Like I'm thinking of finance, which is not 20 years old, but you know, modern finance is what hundreds of years old, going back to the Medici's, and yet is still a majority male industry right now in the U.S. And I wonder the degree to which whether um, the gender breakdown is itself somewhat dispositive. That it's almost impossible potentially to have an industry that is so overwhelmingly male. That also has a kind of respect for women who are members in it.
1: Well, so I, I'm I'm much more versed in the history of technology, of the technology industry. Something interesting that happened in tech um, is detailed in a book called Programmed Inequality by Marie Hicks. Uh, it's about the decline of Britain as a computing power. Britain, of course, had Bletchley Park during World War II. Like they were the ones who developed the Computer, mm-hmm. you know what we know today as the computer. You know they had Alan Turing, and if you've seen, uh, if you've seen the, the imitation movie, game, yeah, the imitation yes. game. It's such a great movie. Uh, so you know you imagine handsome Benedict Cumberbatch as Alan Turing, which the real Alan Turing, by the way, was nothing like that. <laughs> um, so they they had the technology, and there were a lot of women involved in early computing in Britain. There were women working as human computers. If you've seen Hidden Figures, you Mm -hmm. know about human computers. When it became clear that technology was going to be a really fast-moving and lucrative and powerful industry, which was crystal clear right away in the 1940s, they edged women out of the profession deliberately.
0: Why do they do that?
1: Because they're jerks. Like, that's because patriarchy.
0: It's so interesting because when you put these two stories side by side, the dream of the internet in the early, mid-1990s and the reality of the tech community that you experienced, in one sense, they're totally opposite stories. It's a story of a broken dream, a broken promise. On the other hand, it seems like, in a way, the same story like an ironic story about an industry built on a freewheeling, relatively libertarian sensibility that attracted a lot of people who thought they could do whatever they could get away with and they misbehaved and they believed that they were an industry that valued their culture of misbehaving, that that was actually a virtue in tech to be, to break the rules, but that, That instinct to break the rules, which had maybe some benefits in terms of creating technology, also had severe downsides in terms of welcoming people who didn't happen to be, say, white men who came from upper-income households.
1: And, you know, it's interesting, it's actually exactly the same thing that happened at the communes, right? (laughs) So the communes, uh, you know, people went to live on the communes, and it was going really well for a while, but there were massive inequalities. And if you were a woman living on the communes, you pretty much ended up barefoot, pregnant, and in the kitchen, (laughs) which is not what anybody signed up for, which is not what any women signed up for. The communes were also very susceptible to charismatic leaders, Right. So you got cult leaders in there who were leading people astray. You know, people would show up with lots of money and then the commune would, you know, take all of their money and then the money would run out and there was no other money. So the whole thing would fall apart.
0: When we're back, Meredith Broussard and I discuss her diagnosis for what ails tech, a disease she calls techno chauvinism. Plus, she dashes my dream of driverless cars. We'll be right back. Today, I'm talking with former software developer-turned-data journalist and professor Meredith Broussard about the broken promises of the software revolution. In her book, Artificial Unintelligence, she coins a new term that explains how the dream of technology was dashed. It's techno-chauvinism.
1: Techno-chauvinism is the idea that technology is always the highest and best solution. Right. So techno-chauvinists say things like, oh, if we use technology, it will make everything better, faster, and cheaper. And what I would argue is that we are passed to for a more nuanced perspective. It's really about using the right tool for the task. So sometimes the right tool is a computer, and sometimes the right tool is a pencil. <laughs> and one is not better than the other, right? Like you don't, you don't get any points for using your phone instead of writing something on a Post-it note.
0: What is the most egregious example of techno-chauvinism?
1: So I think there's a lot of techno-chauvinism in the marketing of AI as a magic bullet solution to all kinds of problems. The people who are saying things like, oh, AI is going to invade every facet of our existence and it's going to make our lives so much better... Those folks, I think, are, are overstating the case.
0: So I'm really interested in, in this. But first, could you define AI?
1: So this is actually
0: my favorite thing to talk about. My Great. favorite
1: thing to talk about is what the heck is AI exactly? So probably when you imagine AI, one of a couple of images pops into your head. You probably think of something from Hollywood. You know, maybe you think about Arnold Schwarzenegger as the Terminator, or maybe you think about that movie Ex Machina, or maybe you think about her. And the important thing to remember is that that is imaginary. It's Hollywood. It's not real. But our brains do confuse what's real and what's imaginary. And then there's narrow AI, which is actually real.
0: Narrow AI.
1: Narrow AI is real, and it's just math. It's this breathtakingly complicated math. But it's just math. It's like very, very supercharged computational statistics. So AI is a subfield of computer science, the same way that algebra is a subfield of mathematics. And inside AI, there are lots of different subfields. Machine learning is the most popular one right now. Hmm. The way that self-driving cars work, they use machine learning to do image recognition, to do object detection, everything that you need to do in order to uh, make a self-driving car work. There are lots of systems that are operating simultaneously. And yes, it's artificial intelligence, and it's really cool. But it's not going to work well enough to safely replace all of our existing systems. Why not? I think the short answer is because techno chauvinism, because the big fantasy right now is uh, self-driving rideshare cars. Mm-hmm. You know you'd be able to tap your app and the car would come and it would pick you up and then it would go pick up somebody else, and then it would take you to your destination, and it would take the other person to their destination. And, you know it's supposed to be like far more efficient. But people are not thinking about what happens inside the car. Now, I spend an awful lot of my life trying not to be alone with strange men, you know, and all of the women I know, like, we invest an enormous amount in avoiding these uncomfortable situations. I don't want to be alone in a small space in a self-driving car with—
0: One male stranger. Yeah. And no one else. No one driving the car.
1: And nobody driving the car. Like the thing that makes the rideshare safe right now is the fact that the driver can intervene if, you know, if somebody starts getting fresh or somebody starts harassing you.
0: Seems to me this is especially true of of buses.
1: Exactly, the bus driver is a really, really important important part of the social contract that we uh, that we enter into around public transportation, and we have all of this. All of the social infrastructure built up, right? Like, we have a social contract that says that, well, we get onto the bus and the bus driver has legitimate authority over that space. And everybody is going to pay attention to the bus driver, is going to listen to the bus driver. And if you don't listen to the bus driver, there are going to be really disastrous consequences. The bus driver might stop the bus and you might have to get off the bus. (laughs) You know, so, like, remember being a kid and you'd be acting up in the backseat and your mom would be like, listen. I'll pull this thing right over.
0: Yeah. I like, will oh pull this God. thing right over. What
1: happens if the car pulls over? Like, that would be the end of the world. And I don't know if your mother ever pulled the car over on you. Maybe like, once or twice.
0: Yeah. It's a disaster. It's mortifying. It's it's mortifying.
1: totally mortifying. So we all have this in the back of our heads, and this is really, really effective.
0: Yeah. Certainly, technology has been able to improve some infrastructures, many infrastructures. Does the techno-chauvinism frame give us a way to think about where technology can be used to improve our lives and where it is simply trying to solve problems and glean profits— in ways that will hurt our lives.
1: So I heard about this really interesting, uh, interesting use of AI the other day that uh, is very heartening. Um, it was made by an entrepreneur named Laura Gomez, and she uses AI to predict uh, race and gender of job applicants. When you uh, when you use AI uh, on a pool of resumes. Um, What you do in the traditional model is you look at the same people who are already there. So it's going to select for the affluent white guys with Ivy League educations. And, you know, affluent white guys with Ivy League educations are awesome, but there are lots of other people in the world. And if we're only looking at those folks in hiring, that's not actually just What she does is she uses these uh, predictions about race and gender to actually make more diverse applicant pools for companies. So this was a really interesting use of AI to me.
0: And so technology in this case is just simply a tool used either to amplify or to break up the biases that already exist in the system. If I'm running a tech company right now, where can I start to make a difference to solve this problem?
1: One thing that you can think about is fast food versus slow food. It's not good to have a diet that is entirely composed of fast food. And slow food takes much longer to make. It's a little bit more expensive, but it's better for you in the long run. So the, uh, the quick buck that you can make by making a technological solution, by just you know automating something and not thinking about the consequences, that's like fast food. We need the technological equivalent of slow food. Instead of move fast and break things, like we could move slower. And we could be more careful and more cautious about the systems that we're building. We could test them more. We could roll them out more slowly. We could get more user feedback.
0: We could maybe take a little bit longer to not just hire people from our local networks. And try to find a few people from outside those networks who might bring us slightly more diverse perspective.
1: Yeah. Yeah, like if we have more diverse teams, we'll make more diverse technology.
0: Move slow and mend things. Exactly. Thanks so much to Meredith Broussard. She's assistant professor at the Arthur L. Carter Center for Journalism at NYU and author of the book Artificial Unintelligence, How Computers Misunderstand the World. And thank you all so much for listening to this season of Crazy Genius. I'm Derek Thompson. You can find me on Twitter at DKThomp, or you can email me at Derek at TheAtlantic.com. This episode was produced by Patricia Jacob and Kash Mihailovich. Dara Hirsch was our engineer. Breakmaster Cylinder composed our theme song and all the music in this episode. Catherine Wells is executive producer of Atlantic Podcast. Special thanks, as always, to Matt Thompson. And that's all for the second season of Crazy Genius.